Thanks for reading, E. Well, it's lovely to be back. I had a couple of weeks of uh, wonderful holiday, uh, but I'm glad to be back, and I'm glad to be getting into a new series, uh, uh, The Signs in John, as you can see from the wonderful graphic that we had prepared for us. Uh, And so this is kind of a a bit of a topical series in a way. We're not preaching through the whole Gospel of John verse by verse. We've picked out seven passages, uh, very famous ones, about the seven miracles Jesus did. They're called the seven signs. And it's just very interesting in the way uh, the book of John, these signs have been placed there to reveal who Jesus is. And uh, it's him revealing himself to the world that we might be saved. So John uh, chapter 20, verse 31, it's kind of the purpose statement of the book. It says, These things are written that you may believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. That's pretty clear, isn't it? That's the purpose. And so why did Jesus do these incredible miracles, these signs? It was so that we might believe and have life, that we might know and live in and by his name, a new life beginning now forever. And so today we have the first sign, Jesus turning water into wine. You can see it's a little drop there on the graphic. But why don't I pray as we turn to our passage. Heavenly Father, you have made yourself known to us through your word. Teach us now through it that we might have life. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, first impressions are pretty important. And today we look at Jesus' first miracle. And if there's any doubt that it was his first, verse 11 confirms it for us explicitly. This is his first. Have you ever wondered about this? I don't know if you've known about this uh, amazing passage, Jesus turning water into wine, but have you ever wondered why was that his first miracle? What a strange way to begin. Did he just really like a good glass of red? You know, did, did, was he just a huge fan? You know, the most powerful person ever said, what's the best thing that I could give humanity? Penfolds Grange, or better, really good, a really good glass of red wine, or two, you know, quite a few, in fact. And then, you know, the next morning, everyone wakes up with a splitting headache and says, oh, so that was the Messiah. Why? It's a strange thing. It's a strange thing. Why is Jesus' first miracle making wine? What does that say about him? Because the sad reality of, uh, of alcohol and wine is that In fact, it causes great problems in our world, doesn't it? Alcohol destroys lives all too often. Well, as we begin to uh, understand this, try and understand what's happening here, the key thing to keep in mind is that the passage actually tells us what it's about. It gives us the meaning in verse 11. Verse 11 says, He displayed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So that's what this passage is about. Uh, The purpose of it, We are told its meaning, it's about him displaying his glory that his disciples might believe in him. And so whatever you think is going on here, it has to be about that. We don't have to uh, interpret or make up a meaning, we're told what it is. Well, I've got two very basic headings to go through today. Uh, Firstly, Jesus supplies joy. And then the second one is really just at the end, so it's it's pretty much just one heading. Well, the place to start is to really think about what is wine and what's its significance. Uh, And across Scripture, um, there's a couple of basic things that are said about wine. Firstly, um, it's actually something, of course, that's warned about. Um, You know, don't fall into the trap of too much wine. Uh, Don't be a brawler fueled by alcohol. Don't look for happiness at the bottom of a bottle. Uh, These are all things 
the Bible teaches us about wine. But then on the other hand, uh, in Scripture, wine is often spoken about as a good thing. Wine gladdens the heart. It is to be enjoyed. It's a good gift from God. Uh, you know, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, Psalms, tell us all these things. So wine is a, actually a sign of blessing. Uh, any great feast cannot be complete without it in the Bible. Any great celebration, any success needs wine. And so how fitting that Jesus brings the wine. Uh, and Jesus, the Messiah of the Jews, is born uh, into an oppressed people, into a downtrodden time. There they were in the Israelite world. Uh, and he's there to show them that, that God has not forgotten them, that the way to the promised land will soon be restored and so, of course, we're going to need some wine. Isaiah, uh, as we had in our Old Testament reading, did you notice it? Uh, he, he looks ahead to this day, the great day of victory and restoration. In uh, 25, verse 6, it says, The Lord of hosts will prepare a feast for all the peoples on this mountain, a feast of aged wine, choice meat, finely aged wine. The promised land will come. There will be a huge feast, the best food. Uh, and you know, it's twice mentioned there. Don't forget the aged wine. And so we come to the first miracle, uh, set in a very similar scene to the passage in Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah is describing a great feast, a banquet. That is what our parable is, uh, our, our first sign is set in. It's a wedding banquet. That is the scene. We're, we're at a great feast, a great celebration. But oh no, the wine has run out. <laughs> the first sign of Jesus, it's, it's dripping in meaning. It's pungent and rich with the aroma of the king. So let's look at it together. Verse 1, it says, On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. Then the wine ran out. When the wine ran out, rather, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine. Ah, no wine. I think it's probably the right way to translate Mary's comment. Uh, as with the other feeding miracles, the cries, ah, no food. You know, there's, there's possible starvation in the, in the feeding miracles. Here there's possible social disaster. For what kind of wedding would it be if the wine ran out? Certainly in the Bible, a terrible. It would be a, a crisis is the way all the feasts of that time uh, would present that. And so the wedding is having supply issues. There's a supply chain crisis. There's a, you know, once again, people are, they're stuck short. Uh, and it just kind of, uh, it just reminds us of our world. Like how many moments of your week this week could have been a bit like that? People are stressed. There isn't enough time. Ah, the kids are out of control. We're going to be stuck, whatever it is. The first thing, that we, that we see about Jesus is that he enters into our world, into a broken world, into a world that's always running out of things. People are always running out of things, out of food, water, money, time, care. Uh, at the deepest level, these supply issues occupy much of our energy, much of our thoughts. They're the cause of many of our fears. Uh, this, uh, this image has become a bit of a favourite of mine, and uh, I, I wonder if anyone could guess where it is uh, from. Anyone recognise? Anyone think they could call out when, when, where and when? Have a stab. Come on, have a stab. 
Yeah. Did you get it, Eddie? Very good. This was the um, 2021 Suez Canal obstruction by the Ever Given. Do you remember this? This was incredible, wasn't it? A ship laden with about 20,000 shipping containers did the unthinkable and blocked the entire Suez Canal. And I, I just love that aerial image there. Um, and, you know, this was unthinkable. This is the essential global shipping route. Every hour um, that it was blocked, $400 million in trade was stopped. Uh, it, w- it was just unbelievable that this could have happened. How could a ship, a single ship, block 12% of global trade? Just think of all of that was being uh, stopped. Just think of all of the, you know, the incredible flow of trade around the world stopped by one ship, by one minor human error. It was unbelievable. It was quite the reminder uh, of just how easily our supplies can be wiped off, cut out. And I guess I love this image of the little digger because it reminds me of a, a kind of feeling. You know, there's one man in his rather small digger trying to shore up the global supply. You know, it looks like my toddler's little toy in the sandpit. The image captures uh, something of the feeling of not being able to, to keep up, you know, of treading water, that fear of not being able to supply. And Jesus gets it. And he's telling us something about himself. His first miracle, the first thing he wants to show us is that he gets us and he can supply what is lacking. Jesus meets us where we're at, struggling to supply what we need. And what does Jesus do when he sees the need? Well, he supplies an abundance an absolute abundance. I don't know if uh, you're a bit like this, but Jesus, it seems, was an over-caterer. When, you know, when, you, when you're cooking for people, four people coming over, all of a sudden you've got just pots of food and like an over-caterer. Well, Jesus, it appears, was an over-caterer in a good way. Uh, in verse 6, we're given the measurements of the amount of wine that Jesus produced. Uh, it's around 100 bottles, if to save you getting out your calculators. 100 bottles, you know, it's... He effortlessly produces a comically large amount of wine to show that with him there will never be any shortage in supply. Well, returning to our story, uh, verse 3, Mary says, Jesus, we're out of wine, help. Uh, And then were you surprised by Jesus' response in verse 4? It says, What has this concern of yours to do with me, woman? Jesus asked. My hour has not yet come. There's a kind of a rebuke in Jesus' words as he reminds her uh, that he's more than just a son. Uh, He's more than just a good caterer. He is the son of God, and he's come with a mission. My hour has not yet come, he says, for he has come to save the lost, to bring eternal joy to the broken. Those, uh, Those hundred bottles of wine were good, but they were only 100 bottles. Uh, they were a sign. They were just a sign pointing to what he will do in finally eradicating our human suffering and tears. But that is still to come in the new creation. Well, the story continues in uh, verse 5. Mary says, Do whatever he tells you. His mother told the servants. Now, six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they filled them to the brim. And so Mary says, uh, pretty much, stand back and be amazed. Do whatever he says, boys. (laughs) 
And that is how all humanity should respond to Jesus. Ask for help and then do whatever he says. Let him supply what is lacking as we obey him. What's the verdict? Is Jesus' wine any good? Well, they take it to the master of ceremonies, and this guy would have known what good wine tasted like. He would have swished it around in his mouth. He would have spoken of tannins and herbaceous notes. It says in verse 9, When the chief priest tasted the water after it had become wine, he did not know where it had come from, though the servants who drew the water knew. He called the groom and told him, Everyone sets out the fine wine first, and then after people have drunk freely, the inferior. But you have kept the fine wine until now. You've kept the best to last, he says. And this is so true. Jesus' supply, you see, it's abundant, but it's also superior. Uh, And it is. The best has been kept for last. Uh, The new covenant, the new salvation that Jesus brings in, it is superior to the old, to the old way of the law. Uh, Did you notice verse 6? Not very subtly tells us that the jars of water were used for Jewish purification. Uh, The chief chief priest uh, spoke, sorry, the chief servant spoke truth when he said the best had been kept until now. Because no one would have thought it at the time, right? No one was sitting there going, ah, he's used the purification jars. I can see what you're getting at here. This is talking about the new covenant. No one was in that room thinking that. But we as readers reading John's gospel, it, the meaning is very clear. Uh, we are being shown something about Jesus, about what he is doing. The old purification jars, <clears throat> they were used to clean yourself up so that you could become acceptable to God. You know, you were, this was something you needed to do that you, that you were uh, able to be acceptable. Uh, so the, the jars represented the old way. And Jesus turns them, uh, the water in them into wine, turns, turns it into wine that makes the heart glad. Jesus uses the, the, the old symbol of trying to be right with God, clean yourself up, clean up your act. He turns that into a symbol of joy, of a great feast. It'd be like me taking, I don't know, a bottle of Ajax or something, or cleaning bleach and turning it into, a, into champagne. It's kind of this really clear contrast between these two things. The scene of scrubbing yourself, trying to make yourself acceptable, striving, fearing we haven't done enough, is turned into one of joyful abundance, good times and fine food. And so in this first miracle, Jesus says, I've come to bring in a new way. A very famous verse in John 14.6, he says, I am the way, the truth and the life. I am the new way, new rules apply, I will supply what is lacking and my supply will be abundant and superior. That's what, the, that's what this first sign really clearly says. There's another interesting thing that uh, the, the story takes the trouble to point out, and that is that not everyone um, really understood what was happening here. So I assume everyone had a, a taste of this very fine wine and thought, wow, that is good. But then not everyone knew that Jesus had done this. Uh, verse 9 tells us. Not everyone left there with the same understanding of who Jesus was. In particular, the, uh, the expert uh, who verified the wine, the chief servant, we're told he didn't know its origin. Uh, and it all kind of uh, makes his testing of it even more powerful. The chief servant tastes and says, oh, this is amazing. And you kind of think, if only he knew. His verification uh, 
you know, to authenticate the miracle, yes, it is, it is wine, it is it's being converted. Uh, it's even more powerful that he didn't know it was Jesus that had done it. He was, he was uh, testifying about Jesus and his power without realizing it. And this is so often the case. People live in God's world, but denying him, people live as Jesus' subjects, rebelling against him, and yet how often they are testifying about his glory and his truth, often without even realizing it. And you, know, you can just think of so many examples. Uh, but to pick one, uh, you know, just the way that people, when they're faced with death, how often do they cry out to God? You know, even atheists cry out to him for help in those moments. I was listening to an interview um, last week with a man named uh, Jose Hernandez, and uh, he, describes, he describes dying. He, he was in a hospital bed, uh, and he has this great quote. He says, It's a strange feeling to hear your heartbeat going crazy, and then all of a sudden, beep. And, uh, you know, for this poor guy, things were not good, and he, he actually did die, uh, sort of. His heart stopped beating for, for several minutes, uh, and he said he had a life-changing experience. Uh, and now he actually makes art based on the intuitions, he says, from his near-death experience, these kind of really ethereal pieces of art, which are quite interesting. Uh, the doctors say that the brain very much keeps going uh, for, a, for a few minutes in these cases, and so... Uh, he was actually still alive. Uh, but what's really interesting with him is he recalls all of his thoughts during that time. Uh, and, you know, as he contemplated death, uh, ultimately he thought, the universe loves you, Jose, it's all good. Like, he's, uh, he justified himself. He wasn't fearing judgment. He said, no, no, it's all good, we're all one, uh, you're okay, Jose. And so he, he, doesn't, he doesn't repent, um, sadly, uh, at that time. Uh, but but before he got there, when he was first, when you know, when his heart first stopped, uh, and he first realized that he was uh, going to die, his first instinct was to cry out to God. When he realized he was dying, he cries out to God, and he said, "If you save me, I'll do anything for you. I'll change how I live." Uh, and then, of course, he doesn't. <laughs> but how often uh, is that instinct? And I'm al- I'm always not surprised when I hear that same account. When people are faced with death and they're, they're truly struck, they cry out to God. For all people know that they are, that they are small. We're, we're a little digger trying to dig out a towering ship. We all know deep down that God is king, that we are his creation, and we all must answer to him. And so too this chief priest testifies without fully realizing, ah, that is good, fine wine, he says. Well, uh, hopefully you're feeling better about this miracle and you, you feel like you know now why the first miracle was wine. We've answered some of those questions. The final question, as we pull together some final threads, is uh, why was it a wedding? Why was it a wedding? Why did God make the setting of the first uh, sign a wedding? Uh, and again, it's not really all that subtle. So my final point is Jesus supplies a bride. And uh, you probably know this, the Jewish wedding, uh, it lasted for a week. They kind of did this big feast that that went for a a whole week. And the bride and the groom in that time, they were treated like kings and queens uh, for the whole length of the celebration. They were kind of like royalty. And uh, and that was what the wedding was. Uh, And, you know, I remember my wedding. uh, I remember my wedding. I just remember feeling really overwhelmed. I mean, I was, of course... 
ecstatic and very happy to be marrying Nikki. Uh, but I was so overwhelmed because at a wedding, you are the center of attention. You know, you're the guy that everyone's, you know, the couple that everyone's coming uh, to pay attention to. You, you, you know, you're up the front. And I hate being up the front. Uh, it might surprise you to know. It might surprise you to know. I, I, I want to be the guy at the back making fun of the guy at the front. Uh, if you're at the back, that's not an invitation. Um, but yeah, so I, I felt totally overwhelmed being a centre of attention. Um, you know, my, my friends, they wrote a song about me. I mean, when does that ever happen? It was, it was quite a good song. It was just making fun of me for different things, like taking too long to get ready and whatever else. But you just felt like you were the centre of attention. And, and that's what a wedding is. Now, I, Jesus, he is meant to be the centre of attention. He is meant to be the king. That, he's rightly at the center of the universe, of all things. And here we are at this wedding, uh, and Jesus is there. And see, Jesus, all through Scripture, is called the groom, isn't he? He, he, is, the, he is the great groom. And, and the wedding, it, it's rightly he is the groom at the wedding. And the bride at the wedding is, it's us. It's the church. It's, it's the heavenly church. We are the bride uh, being prepared for Jesus. You know, like uh, passages like Ephesians 5 talk about that. And so if you want to ask what God is doing uh, right now, above all else, he is supplying a bride. He is uh, making a bride. He's preparing his church. He's creating and purifying a beautiful bride for Jesus. And so just as he, in this miracle, supernaturally changed ordinary water into wonderful wine, so too he supernaturally changes ordinary sinful people into purified, beautiful Christians. He purifies us by uh, removing our sin-stained clothes and out of his abundance of righteousness, we are made righteous. If we follow him, as Mary says, if we listen to what he says. And so look to our great King Jesus and be cleansed by him and live in his abundant and rich supply forever. For Jesus is able to provide beyond our expectations. Go to him and be blown away. Uh, some of Jesus' parting words uh, before he went to the cross are found in John fifteen eleven. He says, I've spoken these things to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. And our passage ends by saying, verse 11, he displayed his glory and his disciples believed in him. And so taste, see and believe and have joy that will never end. Let me pray. Well, Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for sending Jesus and showing your glory in him to us. Help us to look to him to supply our needs in this life and for eternity. And may we live at the door to the great banquet feast, ready to celebrate the work Christ has done in us, as we prepare for Jesus, the groom and king. In his name we pray. Amen.